the first decade of the 20th century, we have been all misled by the, the kind of debate um, about, you know, whether Fukuyama was right that history has ended and, you know, whether we are entering that sort of stay, final stage of global um, uh, capitalism and liberalism. And, and the questions, questions that we were posing in 2010 were mostly questions like, when will China become a liberal democracy or um, you know, is there going to be some kind of a replacement to the UN in terms of a more democratic global order? Um, I think um, debates about cosmopolitanism became extremely, um, uh, extremely on trend. So, so we we talked about people wanting to be citizens of the world as opposed to citizens of the nation, and so on. And and I remember back then. So this was more or less when I started my PhD. I I was very um i was very skeptical of that trend because it well firstly it was simply not true on the ground welcome to the sixth episode of unfinished business a podcast about humanity what you're about to hear is my conversation with my dear professor, Michal Rojinek. He spent the last 10 years in financial services and payments, working with both startups and corporates. He now advises companies on both growth and innovation strategies. He also spends his time thinking about the interplay of social change, policy and technology, and holds a PhD in political theory from the University of Edinburgh, as well as an MBA from Oxford. He has published on topics ranging from nationalism to financial inclusion. This was easily one of the greatest conversations I've ever had. I'm really glad that I got to sit down with Michal and have this recorded, and I hope to talk to him soon again. This podcast was brought to you by my dear supporters on Patreon. If you like what I'm doing and want to help me ramp up my production, consider supporting me there. You get early access to these podcasts and my videos, plus some other perks, and I get more resources to increase my content quality and quantity. You can find this podcast with video on YouTube or listen to it on your favorite podcasting platform. Without further ado, let's get into it. Uh, welcome to Unfinished Business. Uh, this is the this is the sixth episode of of the of the show. Um, so, hi Rohab, it's it's fantastic to be in the top ten uh, episodes <laughs> that you you've made. Yeah, great to have you. Automatically, been, it it took it took quite a bit of hassle <laughs> to make this happen. Uh, all right, so I'm gonna start by asking you. I'm I'm 19, so the world, like th- th- these are the first few years that I've been really able mentally to process politics in the world and the situation and of, of what is happening, the global order, the politicians in different countries, and it's going quite a bit haywire. I might I might say at least from what I've seen, maybe because I'm so new to it that it's uh, it's quite a bit of a shock. What I've seen so far is quite a, what like, let's say last five, five, six years, it's been a raise of nationalism in, uh, in the world uh, with Brexit, with the rise of Trump. Where do you see this trend going over the next few years uh, after COVID, after Trump lost, Brexit fiasco? Absolutely. So, um, well, firstly, I hope you don't, you don't suggest, you're not suggesting that I'm significantly over 19. Um, uh, obviously, I'm, I'm looking at this world with very fresh eyes <clears throat> in, in many ways. But I think um, responding to your question, uh, 
so this is both um, expected and, ex and unexpected. So I think what what is expected and 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 you know perhaps um, so the resurgence of of nationalism was very much uh, for me expected. I think we in twenty sort of I, I guess the early twentieth, the first decade of the twentieth century, we have been all misled by the the kind of debate um about you know whether fukuyama was right that history has ended and you know whether we are entering that sort of state final stage of global um uh, capitalism and liberalism and and the questions questions that we were posing in 2010 were mostly questions like when will china become a liberal democracy or um, you know, is there going to be some kind of a replacement to the UN in terms of a more democratic global order? Um, I think um, debates about cosmopolitanism became extremely, um, uh, extremely on trend. So, so we we talked about people wanting to be citizens of the world as opposed to citizens of the nation, and so on. And and I remember back then. So this was more or less when I started my PhD. I I was very um i was very skeptical of that trend because it well firstly it was simply not true on the ground um it was not true on the ground for two reasons Sec firstly because there were people who um still held um very close and um and 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 sort of limited um I group identities uh, it, it was simply the case that they were being in many ways marginalized or did not participate in that um sort of mainstream democratic discourse um and i think secondly um what what we did see was that i i guess this this vision of a of a of a world citizen of the of the of the cosmopolite was very much contrasted with the refugee right mm -hmm. and because cosmopolitans were people who had that that possibility that that right that freedom to transcend national borders uh, refugees were the, those who were um, escaping, you know, national borders, but, but still for, culturally limited to their, but but culturally yeah. very much sort of um, uh, still within their kind of own um, kind of local communities and kind of attempts to recreate those local communities elsewhere. And this is not to say that you know one or the other culturally is is you know superior or um, or or makes more sense. But the point is that. Cosmopolitanism, as we understood it in you know in the first decade of of or in fact probably the first two decades of the twentieth century, has been twenty first century has been very much um, something for the wealthy, something for the perceived uh, urban, mostly urban elite, right? And and th this is not to say again that there were not there's nothing valuable in these experiences because there's obviously there's a lot of value and a lot of liberalism actually comes from the fact that people, um, so liberal liberalism came from that, 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 um, 
uh, I guess the prosperity that that came with with cities and and the fact that you know there was a rise of the middle class and the people who were actually traveling and and therefore seeing that actually others you know, can cooperate cooperate with them uh, um, with trade and on, on trade and so on. I think in I think in that sense, the the kind of cosmopolitanism that we have seen in the early part of the you know so far in the twenty first century. Was referencing um, those traditions, but at the same time was very exclusive. And 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 what you have found with the financial crisis is that it has created um, a, a wider gap between those who have succeeded um, in term in 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 the kind of global race for for capital and those who have not succeeded and who are excluded. And that has obviously created the the Trumps, the the Brexit. Uh, and and so on in the world. Now, um, the fact that we are post Brexit and and post Trump. Well, we don't know if we are really post Trump, but <laughs> but the fact so. the fact that we are now in Biden years does that change many things? I said that there is one element that I did not predict, um, what well, I did not expect in 2010, and that was the resurgence of the state, right? And I think actually more important than the rise of nationalism because nationalism rises you know it it's a, it's a cycle um in in many ways um and it has to and and the national nationalism rising uh, tends to have to do with um a a, a political system that um um so it uh, does not work for 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 everyone um and nationalism usually is a response to a need for some kind of um, redefinition of a public good or some kind of common cause that um, uh, that people can get behind and you know and 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 therefore justify or legitimize um, a, a a democratic system. But I think that the more the more problematic trend is the fact that we we're seeing a a rampant growth of the state and the combination of the two. So the combination of nationalism and uh, an increase in the scope and strength of the state is going to potentially be the explosive, um, explosive uh, uh, combination that that will, well, that that might lead to conflict. So, so if if we if I think about the potential of conflict, that's this is probably not um, driven by nationalism; it's driven by by statism. Would you say it's a good idea in this case to? look at history and potentially be scared of what happened let's say in world war ii what, what led up to world war ii and for example as an iranian i've been reading a lot of iranian history it's it's kind of become a joke that oh like for, after trump for example came it's like oh we had another president Ahmadinejad who was basically the same you know, populist and nationalist kind of character but with the revolution itself we also had as you said people who weren't represented by this rise of cosmopolitanism uh, <laughs> um, they they basically followed the religious clergy and, and, and had a revolution would that be a good measure to look at the past um, so so I do think that we live in a riskier world than we have lived than you know than, than, than 10 or 20 years ago. I do think we have probably more to fear of um, than 
I, th I do think that we have more to fear of than most of us think. Um, and this is, again, to do with this dominant narrative that has, um, has basically um, been mainstream for the, for the last um, 40 years at the very least, which is that um, a, 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 some sort of a liberal peace has, uh, ha, you know, we have entered some kind of era of, of a liberal peace, end of history, um, holding hands and, 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 and so on. Um, by the way, I am a liberal, right? So I, I, you know, my criticisms of liberalism does not come from a place of of being anti-liberal. I, my, my, I think, I think there is an issue that liberals sometimes don't see certain things, right? So liberals don't see often like ethnic or 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 group identities or or real differences that um, that matter to people and and kind of choose to to think that these can be ignored or mediated um, by, by institutions. And, um, and I mean, that, that's, that's kind of uh, where that tends to go. Now, um, I think that now what we, on one hand, it is a riskier and more, f more uh, fearful situation than, than has been 20 years ago. On the other hand, we don't know, and I think, I don't know certainly what what a potential conflict or what the potential what what it is that we should actually be afraid of right so because if we're if we're if, you know if if you are my mom then then every time then Russia Russia says something mm -hmm. that she says that uh, it's going to be World War Three and 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 we're going to be under uh, some sort of foreign rule. That's that's basically what she's afraid of. Is is this what we should be afraid of? Probably no. I mean, if you look at um, how um, I mean, the general trend uh, is that around the world countries have been um, changing their militaries in a way that makes them much easier to threaten, cause damage and intervene, cause also um, civil unrest, you know, um, globally. So this is through cyber warfare, um, primarily. Um, but actually, troops on the ground occupation, right, is very much not the type of threats that we tend to, um, at least globally, uh, that, that seem to be in increasing. The what's going to define the the sort of the next battleground is going to be the 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 conflict between the U.S. and China, mm -hmm. right? And specifically, that conflict now seems to be taking the form of a technology race, and it's a technology race around the ownership of the IP, the platforms, and so on that will be. Um, um, collecting information, allowing social control, allowing infrastructure control, um, allowing innovation, um, powering the you know, basically that is the next space race, right? That is basically, it, it, it is around technology and I, IP. Um, is, you know, is, is, does that mean that, for instance, alternative threats such as, um, uh, terrorism could 
um, so, so sorry, cyber, cyber, cyber terrorism and cyber warfare could, could be, um, you know, more on the map probably, right? So that's, that's probably one thing that we'll be afraid of. But I have another hypothesis, and this is that actually instead of a big conflict, what we might be seeing is a, an ideological battle because, and not an ideological battle that will happen, you know, between minds, but I guess if you create sufficient, if you create sufficient uh, distrust in, um, you know, in, in, in what's called the West, although it's a horrible way of calling anything, but if you, if, if, if you look at uh, Western liberal democracies, and if you can cause sufficient distrust in public institutions, and if you can call, if you can cause sufficient ownership of, or at least concern around ownership and privacy around data, if you create a society, which I think COVID is helping to many extent, in which individuals are happy to outsource their personal risk to the state hmm. and simply say track me right let's have an app for this and let's let's get a, a covid vaccine passport and this and that and so on actually i accept a level of of intrusion of of tracking of interference in my life because of the benefits which are security um uh you know, welfare, uh, things like that. Then the question is whether, whether at some point that creates uh, some kind of a convergence between the sort of the Chinese model and and the you know and the liberal democratic model, or actually the only way you can defend, um, you know, our liberal democratic uh, uh, um, rights and freedoms is is through creating some kind of a super state, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of um, tracks us and and keeps us safe and that would of course be um, a situation in which uh, actually the conflict between China and the West um, is is resolved in a sense through um, through some kind of a convergence where actually these systems stop being really opposing each other right and 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 then maybe some systems start buying chinese technology right because that's that's the point i think you know what china is interested in is not to occupy you know occupy spain or occupy germany but would they want to own every you know ai system in a spanish school of course they would right so i think this is the type of um this is the type of control that we will be fighting for. It's going to be ownership of our data, our lives, and our communities in the end. That's that's interesting because in the summer I made a video and that was basically on the same topic of this. I, I literally called it the new Iron Curtain, uh, which was... It was on the same worry, but my take was on it was that it would actually lead to China already has its own firewall, but then expanding this firewall, actually, two days ago, they signed a contract with Iran, a 25-year contract, which includes creating a great firewall for Iran. And each citizen, based on their career, their age, and their political and religious stance, gets access to certain websites. Mm. So no one has access to Google. You have to get a pass, basically, based on your ID. Anyway, 
I, I saw it as the West going its own way, having its own sphere of internet and sphere of influence over the technology world, and then the East having its own, or I guess the China-driven East. But uh, no, I mean, I, 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 I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. Um, um, and I so so certainly the means of controls are going to look different in 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 different places, right? I mean, in, in certainly in 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 Europe, the the move towards control, for instance, controlling you know information, social media comes through from the fact that the industry itself recognizes that unless they act and unless they kind of self control, then um, they they are they will be um, subject to to additional scrutiny and 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 so on. Um, but I do think that there might be a um, there might be a mental leap from uh, at some point from um, if if you know if if the state um, if the role of the state is protect us from harm right um, that that leap can actually take a leap that also goes online and I think what you I don't think you're going to see a Chinese model in sort of online in in Europe or the US I don't think you're going to see that but you're going to see some other form of protection and regulation of what's happening online. My point is that um, there's going to be a fight over who owns what, because, um, I mean, even today, so if you look at Chinese, uh, so if, if you look at um, investment in, foreign investment in Germany, for instance, over the last 10 years, um, something like, 35% of all of the foreign investment in Germany has come from China. When you look at how that investment is spread, right, by different types of assets, then you look at technology, so high-tech companies with uh, IP, so university spin-outs and things like that, and then you look at uh, infrastructure, China has over half of all the foreign investment in German infrastructure and um, uh, and sort of high tech uh, sector, right? So, and it's very similar to to the UK. And regulating this has been um, the the topic of discussion for many governments in 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 the EU, uh, particularly um, during. Trump administrate Trump's administration because it was the first administration that actually started pushing its European allies to stop the flow of Chinese money from from buying um, European companies. Um, again, um, the the strategy that China has had uh, would be uh, you see a a, a spin out of, uh, from University of Oxford. Um, the company cost two million. Uh, um, pounds it, it comes with IP. Um, a Chinese company buys that. Now, because it's only two million pounds, it does does not count as a um, as a large transaction. So it goes under the radar of what used to be the legislation that would um, allow the state to control or to monitor or to stop uh, such takeovers. Um, and then what do they do? Well, they they take the IP, so they copy it and and put it in the in the in the ecosystem um, in, in wherever the organization is in China, 
and they also keep the European company and they and they self they 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 grow it they self services and and they integrate that technology into some other technology that you know someone will be using um, in Europe. Um, I think there is a growing acceptance that this is a problem and um, and and there's there's a more willingness by European governments to to try to stop this. But we are also at the stage where, um, I mean, China has superior uh, capabilities when it comes to implementing all the use cases for AI, for instance, right? So if you want to uh, create effective uh, systems for, for instance, uh, mass education that's fully sort of automated and AI-driven, I mean, there's nothing in Europe that can um, in, in any way compete with the China's experiment, which I think has introduced fully AI sort of uh, sort of hundred percent AI tuition to something like um, two thousand schools or or, or 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 around that number at least that was that was last year. Um, so I think you know we are so far behind the the willingness to implement this technology as well, right? That 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 it's it's going to create issues probably in in five years time actually on this on this topic uh, i don't know if you've read ai superpowers uh, by kai fu lee no i haven't no it's not really about ai it's a clickbaity topic for the book right. but it's re it really really does a great job because the guy is a um is an AI, I believe an AI professor, uh, like in, in, in both in China and in the United States. So he's seen Silicon Valley and he's seen the like let's say um, Shenzhen or other Chinese cities, and he does a really really great analysis of 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 how differently tech people in China and tech people in America work and how this relationship is is developing. It's quite fascinating that book. Well, the main point about AI, you know, China and here is simply, you know. You can you can create various systems, but the effectiveness of AI depends on the volume of uh, volume and breadth of data, right? That you can collect. Otherwise, whatever you're doing is more or less useless. Well, not useless, but just not going to be as as good. And obviously, we're always going to have the limitation in Europe and the US that certain things, you know. Are more problematic to track. There are more permissions. There, that the, um, I mean, it's a silly thing. Like, I mean, it's not really a silly thing, but, um, you know, again, I was I was uh, recently writing an article about education, and uh, the uh, there is a there's a company. I think it's called Squirrel AI. Um, that is basically a, um intelligent tutoring company it started with um with maps tuition and they basically run this sort of ai tutor across china in uh, thousands of schools um i think they have a less than a hundred right in the u.s because because um, they have cooperation with uh, one of the u.s universities but for them to pilot this in a U.S. school, they basically need to have a permission of every school and potentially maybe even every child, you know, to take part of the experiment, right? That's taking, but they don't need to do this in China. So, so the amount of data that will they they're getting from China is just 
much much um, higher, right? I mean, and 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 that does mean that this create more opportunities, right? For for the um, uh, for AI in 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 China. Now, I'm not saying that we should. In fact, I'm 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 more fearful than anything um, of you know attempts to to implement this. I mean, I, what was it? I think it was yesterday or that I was I read on British news that uh, an Amazon dri delivery driver quit his job because basically they've implemented. As um, a, a kind of a program which basically automatically detects when he yawns, um, right? And and this was meant to be for safety. Mean, th this is the point, right? So this this is meant to be for safety, right? So it's not even, you know, it's it's not even a um, an evil. Um, uh, the the intention is not evil because it's. I mean, there are some evil intentions. So there are programs that. Um, track your effectiveness. They look at you know how long it takes you to do a certain task or or things like this. But this is not even that. I think he was happier. He was happier having his his route tracked because because that was an efficiency play. And and technically, you would think that from a freedom perspective, personal freedom perspective, having your route tracked is slightly more intrusive because. Well, let's say that you want to take a take a break or take a long route and to, to an address and get a coffee on the way, right? I mean, it's 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 not really the behavior that should be encouraged at work, but um, you, obviously you can't do it with that route trapping out. But he did not protest about that. He protested when he realized that his emotions are being tracked, and also his facial well, basically his emotions through his facial expressions, and um, that he's given a warning light if he yawns or appears appears disengaged, right? So if you appear disengaged, I would love to actually do it in class, right? Every time someone appears disengaged, they get electrocuted, <laughs> right? But they have like a friendly, uh, friendly sort of buzz of energy. I think a lot of people would drop out or, or love the class. That's <laughs> Yeah, either or. I mean, they would have no choice. They would have to love the class, right? <laughs> 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 yeah, I think this is a good seg segue to actually talk about the people side of the conversation mm. we've had because mostly it's been about the higher level. I feel like people are going to go through a lot over the like, next next decade and 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 beyond. Uh, I mean, with the however long the COVID recovery would take, then all the job automation, job losses, and the, the skill shifts shifts and skills that people need do you see a lot of instability and a lot of suffering uh, instability from that suffering coming along uh, in especially in the west and developed countries it's it's an interesting question so i'm not sure i i think we under we still overestimate the the impact of automation on jobs in the short term. Um, and we overestimated for two reasons. One is the accessibility and cost of new technology. We're still on this curve where <clears throat> technology that leads to automation <clears throat> reduces its cost substantially year by year, which is usually which usually suggests that a lot of companies are going to still um, 
postpone many decisions about automation until the te technology becomes less costly. So I think we overestimate its this, the impact of this in the short term. We do underestimate it in the long term because in the long term, <clears throat> I think we are underestimating um, the impact of automation on the type of jobs or type of labor that we're going to be having, right? So this is the kind of the world that we don't, we can't quite imagine yet because these are the kind of jobs that don't, the careers that we that don't even exist yet. And there is a question, obviously, if there's going to be enough for all and, um, and, and so on. Um, what makes me partially optimistic is that I think, um, I think we're going to see we're going to acknowledge the fact that there is a that covid has made the vast majority of the population of developed countries accept unconditional cash transfers you know this is this is not necessarily ubi you know universal basic income um but people have accepted furlough right in fact um Americans, and this was this was surprising to me, that this some research came out. I think in the last, I think last month, in in fact, that sixty five percent of Americans would support a two thousand dollar per month unconditional cash transfer from the government to everyone, regardless of income, um, and that they would be quite happy to pay higher taxes for this, which is unbelievable because america is traditionally uh americans are traditionally um you know uh, voters who who hate higher taxes who hate um large federal government right they talk about um small government mostly right and and that shift in mentality i think you know does create this opportunity for some kind of financial assistance um, for those who who might need it because of this crisis and because of anything that might come later on, what's even more interesting is that I think most countries have realized that the question of who's going to pay back the debt is starting to look like well this is actually a fake question because probably no one is. Um, so it I think there is another consensus forming which is that. Um, we're going to be living in a constant debt type of situation where money is simply produced, right? Now, again, this goes back to my previous, to my to the first question, and this that actually puts a lot of power to the state, again, right? Because it's basically then, um, a, a, it, it has that um, fiat forming, basically it, 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 it creates the economy in that, in, in a way that, um, uh, that it has for for a while, right? But 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 that increases exponentially with with COVID and what we're seeing today. Um, and I think we're going to see a huge difference, a variation between those countries which are stable, and we're going to see a collapse with many <coughs> unstable governments and unstable communities, uh, um, un unstable um, uh, economies. So I do I do think that what we are going to have is a is a world where um those who have good asset bases, good tradable currencies, you know, 
US dollar, euro, you know, these strong currencies that can create stability will definitely benefit those who are in a, in a constant debt situation. Countries like Argentina, for instance, right, or might, or, or indeed, yes, might have, um, might have real problems, right? Because suddenly you have an unstable government and a high debt situation in an unstable currency, right? That creates huge pressure on these, on these countries. What does it mean? Well, it does mean, it can mean that these countries were going to seek help from large international allies. So you might see another world of polarization with some people opting in to be in the sort of US or EU type of um, friendship and others who will look to China to guarantee their sort of stability um, and and security. So I think that, you know, that's another interesting take. But the biggest problem, and going back to this, you know, is this going to cause mass suffering is, well, what does it mean for equality, right? Because um, you can create that 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 constant debt, um, but if that means, you know, if it means that if this means that you're increasing asset prices, which w- what happens when you print a lot of money and accept um, a lot of debt in the future, then unless there is a you know unless there is a deep 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 financial crisis, um, which we can't really afford, then you are going to see um, a, a continuation of the trend of of assets going up and and the power of labor and income going down. So the problem isn't really whether people are going to be unemployed. The question is, is labor going to mean anything, right? So is whether being employed is going to be some kind of a second class citizen type of situation because actually, um, you know, financial assets are going to be so concentrated in asset, sort of in the kind of the ownership of of um, uh, of inflatable assets and therefore the the value of 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 labor and income is going to be very very low um is that sustainable in the long term will that lead to some kind of a revolution or you know some some kind of um uh, resistance that actually um eventually topples that um, that structure itself it's extremely difficult to to pre- predict or um, know where that goes you know my, my audience is probably going to start getting sick of me talking about this but uh, it's this stupid solution that i have for this that i came up with as a teenager and i still hold true deep down is i think it would be really cool to make the matrix so that people can live in a, well, not the Matrix, not not in not to exploit, but simply as entertainment for people who ha- who don't have jobs anymore to go and explore different realities. <laughs> well, I would be in favor of the full Matrix because then you don't have to worry about the diet, um, <laughs> right? And 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 that solves um, half of my issues. Um, so so I would prefer the real Matrix. Uh, I think you know, so. What you're describing is. Is um is certainly what w- I think is going to um happen, in and I, I don't know how how soon. So the creation of that sort of me- metaverse, third space. Um, so we have a lot of third spaces uh, these days in games, in in other types of virtual worlds. Um, they're they're not universally accessible. Um, 
the cost of access is usually high because it requires, you know, still, uh, you know, the VR headsets obviously going going down in price, but 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 still, I mean, for most people, um, not really, uh, and there isn't really anything that that would allow us to participate on some kind of um, platform agnostic or you know um, sort of place that combines everything right so i think there is an episode of futurama that i think i've seen at some point because very similar where they kind of get transported and basically it's a sort of the metaverse is basically almost like a high street a street and and basically every if you want to go to a program that's that's sort of um represented by a specific shop right and and you could imagine that you're in that you know there is a kind of a metaverse and then if you want to go into the world of warcraft kind of world then then there is a gate for that right or, or something like this um but i think there is probably um still a big leap um in terms of adoption and there's a big leap from what we're seeing now which is that there are some marketplaces some platforms which allow you to to um to buy and sell assets in different virtual spaces um but they are just intermediaries they don't actually create a kind of a um a joint experience or or communal public space which i think that would that would require right uh for for someone to do well my goal for when i make when i happen to make this whenever that would be is that it has to be so realistic that you won't be able to tell while you're in it so, so you're probably Neuralink is the answer here, uh, <laughs> although as, as scary as that may be, but you would basically have your body connected to a virtual brain that gives you the most intensive exercise that your body can handle, gives you the best food, and then you have your brain connected to this virtual body, which is just exploring different universes. Well, I, I really like this, um, you know, this, uh, now we got to the stage where the adoption is still very, very low, so I, so, um, these sort of holograms, right? So, uh, so virtual hologram. Well, I mean, all holograms are technically <laughs> virtual, but but the point is that you basically create a lifelike avatar of yourself in a virtual reality, right? Based on a, some kind of a scan from a camera of your phone or something else, and that therefore, you know, as a future of you know something better than Zoom, because instead of zooming. You're you're basically in that um, you know you're both joining in some kind of uh, space um, where you can interact with each other and you can do body language and and so on. So um, I think you know that is that is probably one of the many steps that we have to make for 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 this for this to happen. There's going to be lots of research um, have to happen to see how people interact with this. How people you know is the way that people read and respond to, for instance, physical behavioral um, data, um, is it different in the virtual world than, than it is when you're actually actually there? And, and how do you improve those experiences? I think this is the kind of data now there's going to be coming through from these platforms and for these experiences. And hopefully that will kind of make your dream dream uh, possible at some point i mean honestly at this point for example there was this game red Dead redemption 2 i don't know if you've heard of it it's set in 1899 so it's like wild west kind of, it's, it's like a, it's a western right but i played that game for two weeks straight for 10 hours a day when i was 16 and when i got out of the house after the 10th day 
I felt like this is not the this is like a fake world and I need to get back to reality, which was the game. That was an actual feeling I had. As a well, I think that this is exactly what how I will feel once I uh, leave uh, Spain and and get to uh, and go back to the UK and uh, to to lockdown. Yeah, quarantine uh, wouldn't be wouldn't I, be very kind. I, I will I will I will be wondering uh, which which world is real. I'm not a big crypto guy. Hmm. I actually dismissed it for the longest time. It's getting funny now, though. <laughs> it's like. I mean, it's clearly a bubble, but it's gotten to a point where one cryptocurrency that was made like 10, 12 years ago is basically combating the value of the United States dollar, which is the reserve currency. And uh, it's basically beating every other asset class. Uh, and it's creating this freedom, crypto as a whole, creating this freedom that kind of fades away the legitimacy of the financial system, financial institutions, and the governments that are basically setting policy for them. Where do you see that going? Where do you are? Are you happy about this? Are you concerned about it? Um, I see it going in every. I see it going in the same direction. Every effort and attempt to override intermediation has gone in the past, which is. Um, that uh, a lot of companies are going to become intermediaries and and they're going to make money on this. So um, I mean, this is the exact same thing happened in twenty oh eight when we were promised or we, we kind of we we kind of had those high hopes of a of a of a peer to the magical word in terms of this 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 intermediation. We'll have to cut that. <laughs> um, is um has been peer to peer and if you spoke to students such as yourself um uh you know 10 years ago your age people would say ah you know banks are not going to be making money because everything is going to be peer to peer and why do i have to pay money to visa or why do i have to pay to anyone if i, I can just create a peer to peer app now, the reality of peer-to-peer is that it has created not the sharing economy, but Uber, Airbnb, and um, basically centralized peer-to-peer um, experiences uh, on which people make a lot of money. Now, um, has it redistributed resources away from you know, the hotel industry, potentially? Partially, although it did make travel... Uh, industry in general grow because people were suddenly taking different types of breaks and and holidays so working remotely from a from a from a new location became much more viable because not many people are want will want to go to a hotel for three weeks and work from there but from a flat in barcelona why not right so that created to all these I think Airbnb very much in that sense has been um, responsible for these structural changes in, in in many local economies. And obviously there's a lot of backlash uh, against that uh, in places like Barcelona or Berlin or indeed Edinburgh, where, where I live day to day. Why do I see crypto going the same way? Well, um, so I think so. The, the the bubble and the asset aside because we can I can 
uh, say a few words about that uh, later. Um, all the payments companies are going into that party now, right? So um, you you may have heard that Visa has um, uh, so Visa has announced a partnership with Crypto.com. Uh, Mastercard and Visa are actually moving towards getting merchants, so retailers, basically, and other um, um, companies, um, institutions that accept payments. Um, they're moving to get them to accept crypto because at the end of the day, payments companies will want to be uh, at the intersection of both crypto and fiat. And they will also want to be at a point where they make the crypto experience, payment experience as seamless, as um, user-friendly, um, and so on. So when you think about the original purpose of, of, of blockchain, you know, to actually disintermediate and to kind of allow you and me to simply exchange value uh, without anyone um, um, necessarily taking a cut. Well, the first thing that was created uh, were were um, crypto wallets, right? Because the first discovery was that, well, it wasn't really a discovery, it was obvious that your average Joe, your average uh, consumer does not have the time, commitment and willingness to uh, create their own wallet um, uh, and to transact directly on, on a blockchain. They will want some kind of intermediary. Um, I mean, generally, these intermediaries don't kind of happen out of nothing. They kind of come from the fact that people are lazy and, and uh, or indeed that, um, you know, some people do value things like speed, ease, uh, even colorful UI, right? Things like this. So I do think that what, what, what we're going to see is a world which where crypto is universally accepted uh, we're going to see a world in which um, fiat is still there, and there's a lot of it, because to give you an example, yes, I think, you know, in a few years' time, it might be become fairly normal to hear that someone has bought a house directly with uh, with a few bitcoins, right? I, I, can, I can completely see this uh, happening. Will banks, university be giving mortgages in crypto in, in, a, in a few years' time? I don't think so. I mean, the, the, the regulatory, the financial consequences for the capital um, requirements and things like that to, to do this would be uh, colossal. So this means that there's going to be um, a vast amount of fiat money in circulation and there's going to be a need for someone to um, be able to settle between crypto and fiat. And that's where uh, companies like Visa, MasterCard and banks are going to be um, uh, doing what they have always done, which is to take money off us. Um, and who knows, maybe that will even increase their profits uh, because it's, a, it's a, a different type of intermediation and perhaps there are different types of risks, right? So I think, uh, I think we are heading to a world where it's going to be a hybrid world um, and these companies are going to actually drive the adoption of crypto uh, rather than necessarily compete with it. Uh, last point on asset prices and you know your your original um, look at the um, so things things can be a bubble. It doesn't mean that they are wrong, right? So there was a dot com bubble. Um, it you know it 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 did not mean that technology stocks or the internet um, 
um, was uh, was not a thing, right? So there was a there was a clear technology bu bubble, um, and and an and asset price inflation. I think we it's it's very difficult to call a bubble until it you know goes away, um, and we don't. I I suspect NFTs are an, are another bubble, but but how much are, I I can't I can't tell that either. Um, what I can say to people is that it's still in my view, the case that um, if you think about, um, you know, what what is the, this this sort of difference or distinction between investment and speculation? So investments should generally be based on some kind of a prediction of a future cash flow, which you know, unfortunately, you cannot do on Bitcoin. So, what, you know, even today, would I call Bitcoin investment? No. Do I think it's going to increase in value? Probably yes. Right? Would I put um, a lot of money in it, uh, you know, again, probably no. Um, so, so this is, a this is more on the, on the asset price. Um, but again, it depends on your, on your risk, um, profile on what you want to achieve. Um, so if you do, if you do wall street bets, for instance, right? <laughs> so wall street bets is a great example of something where, you know, you could say, ah, we have proven you wrong. We can, you know, you can see that you can inflate the asset price of basically anything. Um, if, if you really kind of apply the, the sort of the pricing power of, of, um, uh, of a large amount of people. Sure, you can do this, but you have to remember who, who are the people of Wall Street bets, right? So the people who use Wall Street bets would um, specifically brag about making trades where they were uh, gambling and often losing their entire financial wealth. Um, so there was a trend on Wall Street bets where people actually would share when they've lost all their money. Mm -hmm. And this was a kind of a bragging point because it was very much in line with what they were what they were trying to do. So again, a lot of money made money on GameStop, right? And there are even asset managers who, who, who invested in GameStop and so on. Um, does it make an investment? No. Can you make money on speculation? Of course you can, right? So, um, as you can do with uh, with uh, many other things. Well, the, the the financial sense aside, it's a bit poetically beautiful because it's like a gang of people. Like, it's a decentralized mob, basically, that is attacking uh, big states and big institutions. That's I find that cool. Oh. I don't. I don't know. Uh -huh. Well, Michael, thank you very much. This was. Uh, this was one of the coolest podcasts I've ever done and one of the coolest conversations I've ever had. So thank you for this. Thanks, Roham. I'm, I'm still glad I'm in the top 10. <laughs> Hopefully you'll also <laughs> once again be in the top 100. <laughs> <laughs> okay, By fantastic. Thanks, Roham. Thank you. Thank you.